The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with Ellie Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Philip Tedeschi, Professor of Social Work at the University of Denver Institute for Human-Animal Connection Graduate School of Social Work. We've spoken previously with Philip on the relationships between animal cruelty and abuse toward animals and cruelty and abuse in people, and it has helped reshape our responses toward how we deal with abusive social behaviors and environmental disaster situations where companion animals and pets are of a great concern to the community members and disaster relief aid workers. Today, we're going to delve a bit further into the maltreatment of animals and the sociological relationships to us, and furthermore, that Philip has just returned from Kenya and the work and projects that he's doing there that does relate to the Institute for Human-Animal Connection. Philip, welcome back. It's always a pleasure conversing with you. Oh, thanks for having me again, Ellie. Nice well, to talk to you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too. It's 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 been a it's been a long 2015 was a long interesting year all over the world. A lot of great things happened, a lot of tipping points were reached and a lot of paradigm shifts were reached in terms of the human animal connection. I think we um tipped over a point and have become much more aware and um I'd like to know how you feel about that in terms of your recent trip to Kenya. What were you doing there? Well, you know, it's a it's such an amazing place to go, and uh, the work that I've been doing there over about the last uh, I think this we've been there now working for about the last uh, seven or eight years. Uh, I work with an organization called the African Network for Animal Welfare. And we bring graduate students from the United States, from our program at the University of Denver's Graduate School of Social Work, to focus on what we call, call One Health. And One Health is really a paradigm that for many years defined you know, zoonotic disease transmission, really disease transmitted between animals and people, but increasingly is now defining the relationship between environment, animal health and human health. And what we really believe is now the new social scientist, the individual who is beginning to train on human welfare issues really has to understand these other dimensions of environmental 
health, ecological, you know, system services, health, and animal well-being alongside uh, healthy communities. So we bring students there and we have a fantastic program that allows them to study all of these variables um, in, uh, you know, in East Africa, which holds probably the, you know, world's most amazing biodiversity. So it's a wonderful place to hold a class. Well, this is amazing that you've brought up One Health. Uh, we started discussing this last year with um, UC Davis and the symposium, the Wildlife Veterinary Symposium, and Dr. Sharon Deem, who brought up One Health. And it really is a paradigm shift that we're facing. So many people, uh, organizations and and pr- professionals like yourself, are coming up and using this term One Health more and more. And thank you so much for that graceful, eloquent definition. Because if we're going to move forward as a human species and a planet and live on the planet that provides for us, we have to begin connecting all the dots between the relationships, as you said, environment, animal, human health, and ecological systems health. It really is an interconnected web. So um, tell me how you actually do that. Well, the main, you know, I'll, I'll just maybe I'll give you a, a mini case example of something that we were working on this year while we were there. You know, one of the, the issues that we study are human animal conflict issues, which are uh, in many cases responsible for the demise of, of many animals. So that can include, you know, many animals that are really in many ways encroached upon by human settlement or where animals and human animals are competing for the same. Uh, areas, migratory paths, um, you know, resources. And one of the areas that we studied um, and participated in working on solutions with was human-lion conflict. And in certain areas, particularly where the communities are now expanding, what we'll see happen is lions who will, you know, uh, predate on these families' um, livestock. When that happens... And in many cases, um, you know, these are families that may have, you know, very limited resources. So every, uh, every cattle or every, you know, bit of their livestock is of value and important to them. They get really upset and, and feel as though they have almost no alternative other than to try to fight back and to protect themselves from these predators. And, and so one of the things that happens is that in some cases – communities will try to poison uh, these animals. And one of the things that is starting to occur in, uh, in this you know, human conflict issue is that um, the use of what the most typical poison that's used is a, is a poison called furidan or carbofuridan. And carbofuridan is a cheap, um, relatively inexpensive pesticide that can be bought at almost any hardware store. But it is very deadly to these um, amazing animals. So they will poison a carcass. And then in many cases, lions, hyenas, other um, animals uh, will, you know, um, be... uh, Will scavenge. Exactly. And the other animal that's engaged in that scavenge is also raptors, vultures in particular. So whiteback vultures, the rupals vulture, and the hooded vulture, the decline in these particular species of vultures has really dramatically dropped. So we have studies from the 
you know, um, for example, from the National Museum of Kenya and and uh, partnering universities that have shown, you know, 60 to 70 percent decline in these raptor populations over just the last, you know, uh, 10 or 20 years. And that's really a significant one health issue, because what we know about the role that raptors and vultures in particular play about in health towards human beings is that when we have decaying carcasses that uh, are decaying much more slowly because they don't have vultures cleaning up these carcasses, what we know is that these carcasses are you know, exposed to many other animals that then come in contact with human communities and we have the, the transmission of diseases as a result. So this makes a kind of a perfect One Health example for how we have these human-animal conflict issues that, and then these cascading risks that impact the environment and the health of both not only animal but also then human populations. And as you know, you know we've had uh, significant disease issues in Africa over the last year with the exposure of the, the Ebola virus as a feature of human-animal conflict issues. Absolutely. Absolutely, and that not only terrifies tourists, even though Kenya is in, was never a vector or an area where Ebola hit, but what it means is, and I think what you're you're alluding to and uh, intimating is that as we break down these ecosystems and we get more and more people, and even though they're an individual family, it's we're getting more of them, and there's more livestock and small stock. And the conflict, the human-wildlife conflict, HWC, becomes even more bitter. So, and you'd said over the past 20 years, so 20 years ago, carbofuran was a really big deal and hit the news, 60 Minutes and all of that on uh, lion poisonings, retaliatory lion poisonings. And um, now this poisoning with other as deadly pesticides is really sweeping across sub-Saharan Africa and it's happening on a much larger scale in Namibia um, killing elephants three to four hundred elephants at a time and they're poisoning water holes so the one thing about these poisons is they stay in the ecosystem they stay in I think they um, have something like a half of life of 42 years talking with Tim Snow and the human uh, the wildlife poisoning prevention and conflict resolution organization over there in Namibia and Botswana this is exactly what he deals with yeah. so it's also creating a whole another kind of crime scene detection and as you said it's getting into the human communities as well so I'm really glad that you brought this up into this one health type of um, scenario and use this as an example because you said it so eloquent, eloquently as we break down the systems and we lose our vultures which are being decimated across sub-Saharan Africa we're losing the janitorial system that keeps the ecosystems clean That's so um, what was the work that you did with your graduate students and the program that you did there to address the salute, to find or to address the situation? How do you talk to the people? I think you said you were in Laikipia or in Kenya. How do you, how do you bring the access of these, this information and this bigger picture to these small communities that may not have the conceptual understanding of how big this problem is? Well, well, in our in our class, one of the things that we do very early in the course is we 
uh, become familiar with the challenges facing East Africa in the form of things like deep poverty. So we do, we're doing work in settings like Kibera, Kenya, one of the largest slums in the world, and at least according to the United Nations, the closest um, high-density living environment anywhere in the world. And if you ask questions about why are people, why, why do we see these unplanned communities and these much you know, more significant pressures with more and more people um, being added to these slum environments, um, one of the, the you know, answers to that is we see degradation of their home environments being a feature of the reason why they're now moving, why they're refugees, really, if you will, and then moving to urban environments to try to make a living. So if we want to begin to support communities to be able to have, you know, basic, you know, needs and be able to meet their their own communities kind of basic health needs, we need alternatives for economic viability and sustainability. So one of the activities that we engaged in on this particular course was the assisting uh, a farmer uh, to Im- to Im- um, to install anti-lion lights, these predator deterrent light systems that they you mount right on the uh, shamba, right on the the actual um, the boma, yeah. the fencing. Yeah, exactly, right around the boma fencing. And what that will really do is that allows that farmer to have some tool, a relatively inexpensive tool to uh, keep predators at bay, at bay. And so those are uh, just maybe one example. We're not, you know, our students are, are learning, meeting those farmers, hearing about and getting a new appreciation for what it means for them to be struggling with this predation issue, but also trying to come up with, you know, sustainable solutions for those sorts of things. So we, uh, we had that uh, opportunity. It was a fascinating one. We successfully installed a set of lion lights, and um, sh- uh, sure enough, just on our uh, our return home, crossed the paths with a lion who uh, was not far from this uh, particular farm. So it, it made the point that these are real life challenges, you know, that are unfamiliar to our graduate students, but are everyday issues for these farmers. Absolutely, and I'm I'm glad you stated that. It is very unfamiliar to us because we we here in the, in the United States. We have already wiped out most of our natural predators, the mountain lions and the wolves. We have a, a big problem with both the coyotes, foxes, you name it. And um, so we're not used to living with that kind of conflict anymore. And we're very used to being able to recreate it anywhere we choose to go, whether a national park or walking down the block. But in Africa, it's such a different experience that human-wildlife conflict is really growing and um, that the people have a whole different perspective about lions. Were you there when the lions in the Mara were, were poisoned? We were there. Actually, we were in Africa, right, as, that, as the marsh pride was, um, it was killed, you know, which was just uh, heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. And what's, what's sad is that there are solutions. There's many solutions. There's build a better BOMA. There's better um, livestock management and hus- livestock husbandry that can take place. And um, the world has changed in Africa. It's turned. There's so much more livestock. And because of climate shift and all these things, everything that you described that is one health has shifted. So lions are very aware where easy food is. And their prey 
species where they normally eat. So I work the other side of what you're doing, which is fabulous. You work on the human side. I'm working on the wildlife side to address the same issues. And we do a a project called Conditioned Taste Aversion because the one thing that lights and fladry and all these non-lethal solutions to predation is it does not change the lion's mind or behavior that it still wants the cow. Um, yep. Our conditioned taste aversion changes the lion's hardwired response that it no longer wants to eat a cow. And it's, yep. it's showing that it works. We're doing trials in Botswana. The problem is, is you have to do it often, and lions are a social group, so it doesn't necessarily transfer from um, lion to lion, and it, it, it takes a lot to do. But um, at the same point, it is it does work, and stopping predation and reducing human-wildlife conflict is a multi-layered and multi-tool. Um, it requires a lot of different tools to work. So yeah. lions are getting closer and closer to these communities because these communities are getting closer and closer to where the lions are. Mm-hmm. So um, we have about a minute here until the break. Um, what can you give us just a little bit more example of what the graduate students encountered in terms of what surprised them that they took for granted and realized, wow, this is not common knowledge over here? Well, I think one of the other things that we are, are combating is is misinformation about even issues, things like poaching. Uh, for example, one of the activities we engage in is desnaring activities, which is the which is the process of taking down wire nooses or snares that you know are responsible for killing of many many animals, um, and what you know was happening you know at the, there was a point where you know the harvesting of animals for kind of the subsistence um, you know consumption you know had a limited an impact probably on wildlife populations but maybe a limited impact but now we're starting to see these being run by you know criminal syndicates the prevalence of cell phones and transportation systems that now are supplying the major urban centers with wildlife, um, you know, um, and, you know, meat through the bushmeat trade has become really an untenable and unsustainable and consumptive use of wildlife that has to be changed. So our students get a firsthand look at that, are participating in removing of snares, but also working with communities on what it's going to take for them to find more um, and more sustainable economic forms of, of, of livelihood. This is really incredible. So we're going to step away for a break for a minute. Stick with us with my guest, Philip Tedeschi, and the uh, University of Denver Human Animal Connection Graduate School of Social Work. We'll be right back. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all. 
and to take responsibility for our lives and our earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join host Gary Ray as he shows what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. Welcome back, Our Wild World, with my guest, Philip Tedeschi. And we uh, finished the first part of this program with Philip's recent experiences in Kenya. And those of you who have listened to Our Wild World over the course of this program, the three years, you're going to realize that these are challenges that have been going on for a long time. But now we have the ability to address it. We have tools in the toolbox to be able to address these challenges and opportunities in a multitude of ways. So that leads me to a question, Philip. Why do we want social scientists involved in animal issues versus just vets and conservationists? Oh, that's a that's a really a really important question, and I'm glad you asked it because it's really kind of been the primary focus and the commitment that you know our program at the University of Denver and others are making towards you know really beginning to educate a new generation of social scientists that are bringing you know their capabilities. Uh, of understanding and working with uh, the human sides of these dimensions to the critical issues of conservation work and, and one health and, and those sorts of things. So that's the very work we're doing at the at the University of Denver. And I, you know, I'm I, it leaves me more and more optimistic because what I'm finding are really smart and really motivated and talented uh, young graduate students who have been thinking about these issues often since they were young children. You know that they really were are motivated to find solutions, and the social sciences for many years have been, you know, untangling complicated human issues, human agendas, uh, and become you know have tools, as you said, tool. Uh, you know, we have a whole toolbox full of strategies to motivate and organize communities to respond to the critical issues that face them. What hasn't happened until fairly recently is we haven't defined the environment as a relevant issue to the social sciences uh, to the degree and the urgency that it that really needs to. 
And so I think is the shift when you were talking kind of what would you think about 2015 and, and, you know, now 2016, I think one of the exciting things is that we're starting to see that really change. People are recognizing that quality of human health, even human security is now requiring that we pay attention to the quality of our living environment and the animals that live there, including non-human animals. Right. So that leads me to a question. What is the average age of your graduate student? Well, very. We have some that come directly out of their undergraduate social work training. We have others that are repurposing themselves and, um, you know, wanting to, you know, kind of well spent and they are even leaving other careers to come back to graduate school and get a master's in social work degree. And they're just finding our curriculum, I think, you know, to this interest. So we have, for example, a concentration, what we would consider a specialization in uh, sustainable development and global practice, as well as animal-assisted social work, which then allows them to really zero in on the issues that we've just been talking about. It's really fabulous because when I was in college, there was nothing like this available. Yeah, me too. The reason I ask that question is that we are seeing a huge shift an era. So I, it's so hopeful and optimistic for me to hear you say that people are repurposing their lives, coming back to school because they're recognizing one health, even if they don't understand the full definition of that, and that younger students coming right out of um, college and graduate school and postgraduate are wanting to come back in to do this because they're recognizing we are at a point of living on our planet from the last 50, 100 to 50 years that is no longer sustainable. So it's really, it really inspires me and gives me hope that in 2016, I think is going to be a huge shift. I thought it was going to be 2015, and it was in many ways, but it was a very hard, kind of sad, depressing shift that woke us all up. Cecil the lion, trophy hunting, what place do we have next to our non-human animals, non-human animal rights. A lot is really coming to the fore now with a, from a wide variety of angles. So um, thank you for that and giving me hope in that. So um, let's talk a little bit further in terms of how the social science sciences work together with, let's say, the other sciences, environmental, biology, geography, veterinary, and how do you trans- transfer this knowledge to the communities on the ground and, let's say, where you're working in Africa? Well, I think, you know, one of the compelling developments, you know, and something that probably all the listeners to your fantastic show, you know, have been tracking at some level, you know, we just came last year to the close of what the UN called the Millennium Development Goals and just launched this, you know, the new, what we were do now as the sustainable development goals, really the, you know, new strategies and that are, are, are the targets that drive the uh, global efforts and in many areas talking about probably about the next 15 years or more. And those sustainable development goals, there are 17 of them, actually. If you, if you look at them, I'll just give you a couple of examples, but it, but it speaks to why social, social 
is so critical in and and important for it, its involvement, as is the social sciences. So it has things like, you know, reducing poverty, um, so eliminating hunger, looking at health and well of communities, improving education, gender equality, clean water and sanitation, um, you know, affordable and clean energy systems, right? Those are just of the examples. There are others, you know, things like protecting oceans, climate action, you know, um, making sure that we're using our resources carefully and, and more properly. Those uh, have to become part of the dialogue and the curriculum that's found in our, our best institutions, our upper, you know, our undergraduate and graduate programs, but probably even right in our high schools and grade schools. You know, they need to become part of the core knowledge or what we would consider, you know, core competencies of virtually every profession, not just on the, you know, the land of biologists or uh, economists but really the work of all of us in developing new and more sustainable communities. And we have the technology to do it. I mean, so now there's, it's a feature of, of really um, learning to work together. And if we can do that, I think this is really where social workers come in, is that, you know, we're, are the historic role that social workers played have, has been um, causing, you know, um, change to occur through at times activism but other times through things like policy or good community um you know good community planning and organization so so part of this is going to be an issue where we what i hear you saying is it's more of a bottom-up movement by teaching young people and having this once again become a core part of who we human animal are that we are connected to the earth and that it is all about one health that it is an interconnected web of life and that what happens here has an effect in africa what happens in africa is going to have an effect here and that works with any country around the globe so we have to start you know visualizing earth as a um, series of let's say connected dots with strands of light and different thinking holding hands and reaching out with each other so what's interesting is here we are 20 years later and Africa is still in if not more so deep poverty and the politics and the policy is making um, the whole value system of the resources if it pays it stays so I was talking with someone the other day earth can never pay for herself Wildlife doesn't have money. It can never pay for itself. So is part of this system and what you're teaching and what you're finding out and hearing from your students is that there are other value systems than monetary, that they're the, the ecological value system of itself, aesthetically, ethically, morally, has that's a value that needs to be uh, considered? No doubt about it, and I, I think what we're what we're you know well past the point of I think suggesting, but now activating around would be putting those justice uh, you know activities and practices you know into action in in uh, often in what we consider evidence based models. So we know that we have now strategies that can improve outcomes on some of the most issues that we've been facing 
global community. Think, you know, HIV infection, for example. You know, we've, we're making significant malaria, is, which continues to be people that we've made headway in our reduction of, of malaria deaths, you know, across the planet. So there's many stubborn issues. I'm not trying to be overly rosy here or optimistic, you know, um, not unrealistic about the challenges. But what I am suggesting is that by engaging this multidisciplinary response that, you know, we might even refer to it as transdisciplinary now. I like that term, transdisciplinary. Yeah, and I think what it, you know, that's the term we use in the social science to refer to getting all the right uh, individuals or all the right knowledge bases um, and levels of expertise at the table to solve this problem so that we have to learn how to work together in silos. And when we do, most of the problems that I just listed in these sustainable development goals become targets that we can make substantial headway. And animal welfare plays a major role in this so that we know that if we add animals into the mix and we think of uh, things like peace and justice, um, stronger improved recognition of, of social justice parameters, that relates to the well-being of wildlife and other animals around the planet. When we see people in bad shape, we also see environment and animals in bad shape. So do you think this leads to sort of a redefinition of and a reminder, literally somewhere language written of what social justice means? Or has it changed or is it always stayed the same and now it's just becoming more to the fore and more important. How do we, um, how do we re- reconnect to what, what we grew up with? You and I are similar in age and um, we grew up with uh, the knowledge that we were connected, where our food came from, where the resources came from and that they um, didn't last forever, that we had to take care of them. And now we've gone through this phase of, you know, it's like party hardy. It's all going to hell in a handbasket, so use it all up. Um, and now I'm hearing you're saying there is a group of younger people and older people wanting to repurpose their lives because of this awareness. But once again, um, in a place like Africa, it doesn't have the infrastructure where the intelligentsia that is learning this, and let's say they're coming to to the University of Denver and studying with you, how does it, once again, how does it literally transfer to a village? How do we build up that knowledge? This is the question I'm asking myself with the work that I do with Wild Eyes Foundation, that how do we, how do we scale up? Well, you know, I think one of the things that becomes indelible when you spend in time in places like uh, East Africa that you realize that the most of the communities that we're in, for example, over there, are not the primary consumers, right, uh, and uh, users of, and consumptive kind of consumers of, of resources the way many of the developing uh, countries are, especially the United States. And so if one to support the health and well-being of that village, or the, what we really need to do is look in the mirror and change in our own individual patterns of behavior, attitude, values, and, and those sort of things. So I think when you're, you know, your question about does social justice have a new definition, there's many different ways people define social justice. But one of the things I think that 
is, you know, needs to be kind of an uncompromised element to that definition is that we are including systems, our ecological systems, which include all animals, including animals. Um, so when we do that, one of the things we do is we start is that we actually are going to have much better outcomes when we have an inclusive mission. So that's what's been so frustrating about things like the denial of climate impacts, right, is that, you know, when you get out of the political bubble of the United States, you realize there are tremendous efforts going on worldwide to come up with solutions and effect action. There's many institutions in the United States that do great work, but are often muted, you know, behind the unwillingness to talk openly about these strategies. So, you know, I think uh, the next 10 years and then, you know, the next uh, governance and leadership will start to reflect people in, you know, smart, the thinking individual starting to recognize that it's in our best interest to be global citizens. And part of the inclusive kind of thinking would include our all of our living uh, ecological all over the planet. None of them are inconsequential if we want to have quality of life for all of us. It goes back it goes- to that old saying of think global act local so we've got to step away for a break for a minute come uh be sure to stick back with come back and listen to the last bit follow us on facebook look up the uh, university of denver institute for human animal connection and philip tedeschi and we'll be right back Family caregivers face some tough challenges every day in caring for a partner, parent, child, sibling, friend, neighbor, or even coworker. You are there to provide the care that these people need after everyone else has gone home. Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley will provide you with a social networking experience. You'll hear from experts and others who are experiencing the same things, and together you will promote a common cause. Tune in to Family Caregivers Unite, live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. 
We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss, Our Wild World, and my guest, Philip Tedeschi, from the Denver University Institute of Human-Animal Connection. So we've been talking through this program about the, um, I'm not going to even call it concept, this new wave of thinking that is a necessary shift, one health, that includes the human and non-human communities and planet Earth itself, everything from the umbrella species to everything under the ground. It's all an interconnected, healthy or unhealthy system, and we humans have a huge part to play, and as Philip and I have been talking about, tremendous opportunities to pull this all back together. Philip, during our last section, you had mentioned that you noticed that when um, an ecosystem is failing or the the systems are bad and that the animals are not doing well, that usually in that area, the people are not doing well either. That when one is bad, the other is bad. Or when one starts to fail, the other starts to fail on both sides of the human to non-human connection. So this kind of leads me into a bit more of the core work of the Institute for Human-Animal Connection and some of the work you've been working on, the maltreatment of animals, and how we've talked about this previously on our other programs, which I would love our listeners to tune into. Um, We'll provide the links on our Facebook page and through Philip's Facebook page and Twitter. Um, But um, tell us a little bit more, because you've gone more into depth on the maltreatment of animals and what that does, not only to the animal, but to us. Thanks for that question. It is a big work that we do. And one of the things before I forget that I wanted to invite you and and any of your listeners to look at is go to our Institute for Human Animal website at the University of We have a conference coming up on May 12th and 13th called Animals on the Mind, the Social Neurobiology of Human Interaction. And, and, and we're really looking at both the practice and research element. This is going to be a fantastic conference that looks at how our connection to animals affects human well-being, and particularly the neurochemistry or neurosocial science uh, in, in uh, the human brain. And that really the question you're asking because one of the things that you know we know as social scientists and when and a common framework is that we sometimes will use the term macro practitioners we sometimes think about um meso level practitioners we also think about micro practitioners as the person focusing on the individual case or problem so one of the exciting things that we now know as a of working with human and animal interaction issues is that person's interaction with animals matters and the condition of the animal so influences uh, that. So when somebody who is in contact with an animal that is healthy and the welfare of the animal is, is identifiable and prominent and you can see that animal is in good shape, is 
uh, you know, in, in an environment is uh, properly or enhanced for that animal. In many cases, person benefits from interaction. But when we have the opposite, and that person contact with an animal that's either suffering, damaged um, in some form or fashion, um, you know, diseased or hurt or harmed, then we have uh, really now new evidence that these are factors for uh, human problems, human psychopathology. So we have a new clinic at the University of Denver. Um, in fact, we also have a new book out that is on this very topic where we do evaluations that are very psychological evaluations, but they're referred to as forensic animal maltreatment evaluations. And these evaluations are done on persons who have been convicted of animal cruelty. And in this new book called Animal Maltreatment, Forensic Health Issues and Evaluations, um, outline the process of doing these evaluations and come really suggests that when we see, you know, individuals who are engaging in direct violations of, um, you know, the law or harming animals, that we're seeing persons who are also a significant, potentially a significant risk to um, public safety in their own communities and often uh, have really identifiable mental health issues. I'd like to go back a minute. I mean, what you're, what you're talking about there is... Um I can certainly see the connections from the sociological standpoint and for the community standpoint that um, these evaluations and uh, the, maltreat- the a- a- maltreatment of animals and that connection for persons at risk. But I'd like to go back for a minute to what you had said that, you know, an animal that's in a, a good environment and is healthy and is is doing well you can see that and then you said the other side of that is the person who is not doing well personally i happen to be going through a rough period my mother recently passed and i see it running through my cat family and i also rescued two new kittens and um, been trying to work with the communication between me the human and my feline family because um, the grief that I've been feeling is really having an effect on my cats and it's creating confusion and frustration and um, bad behaviors in all of us. So Mm -hmm. this course that you were talking about or this conference, um, once again, tell me the conference that's coming up and the date. So the date is May 13th. It's held right up campus in the University of Denver in Denver, Colorado. Okay, so I would like I would like to be able to join that one, but I think that's when I'm heading back to Africa. And the the course that you were you were talking about that addresses this issue? And so the and the, yeah, the conference itself is called Animals on the Mind, the Social Neuroscience of Human Animal Interaction. Uh, and really what we're what we're getting at is, I mean, you're, you're touching on that, is that, you know, social animals, including non-human animals, um, need connection with one another. So when we think about our relationship with our companion animals, you know, what's happening with them, happening with us, is not sequential to the other. I mean, they're members of our family systems, uh, and, and most social animals in some form of a family. 
uh, family connection. Even even when they spend significant times separate from one another, there are moments and times where connection is critical. Uh, so, it's, you know, our pets uh, are part of our social support system, and we're part of theirs. So when we have emotional challenge going on in our lives, they usually do, uh, you know, are manifested in various ways among other members of our own system. I can certainly attest to that. <laughs> yep. And it's it's not manifesting itself in a nice way. So um, it's 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 difficult for the human sometimes to um, find the softness in our heart and our mind to um, reach out to our um, bad behaving animals. And then realize part of that bad behavior is they're telling us we're behaving badly. And um, there sometimes has to be a, a place to break that cycle and step out of your own mind, which is what I've been trying to do, and step into the mind of the animal. So um, it, it's interesting that this this class, uh, Animals on the Mind, Social Human Animal Connection, um, I'd love to... Uh, participate in that course. Is it um, in person or is it available online? Uh, this is actually going to be a um, an actual conference. It will be a two day two day conference with many experts and speakers from around the world participating uh, for those two days, May twelfth and thirteenth. Oh wow! That's oh, wow. very exciting. Um, if I'm not in Africa, then you just might see me down there in May. Um, it's been a couple of years since I've been able to be back in Africa, so I'm really raring to go and get back. So um, we've got um, some time here. What are some other important or critical issues or um, that you would like to address that would be important for our listeners to, to know today about this subject? Well, maybe just to finish up this discussion around the importance of... of uh, Addressing, you know, and identifying, and then and then actually taking some time to carefully evaluate um, maltreatment needs to become a much more common practice. So, you know, every state in the, in the United States has uh, laws against uh, cruelty to animals, and most of those states actually have even felony, you know, felony laws related to certain types of aggravated animal uh, maltreatment. But what we still don't see, and what minimizing the nature of animal cruelty is that often the courts don't know what to do with these cases, understand the importance of addressing them as serious issues. So one of the things that we'd like to see happen across the United States would be for the criminal justice system, our judges and our prosecutors in particular, have more familiarity with the importance of asking for a specialized evaluation that then the court very specific information about why that abuse or that maltreatment is occurring. We can explain why animal cruelty occurs with very little uh, fuzzy factor anymore. I mean, so it doesn't have to be kind of this unclear, un, you know, unexplained phenomenon. We now know exactly why people engage in animal cruelty and provide the court with recommendations for what to do about it. But before that's going to make any difference, we have to have the courts really recognizing that this is an important way to respond to public safety and public health. So uh, we're starting to do that here at the University of Denver. We have a clinic that's training specialized psychologists and workers to do these types of evaluations. But we really believe that this is going to be the next 
in you know not minimizing animal abuse where it's just written off as a you know, a ticket or as a you know maybe a community service uh, issue or uh, what have you, but really out what's going on with that person because it's not normal, it's not typical for a person age in you know significant cruelty to especially animals that they have relationships with that have you know are intelligent animals that they have ongoing relationships when we see cruelty occurring in the context of that uh, home environment in particular we're really looking at a form of family violence that needs to be addressed and uh, and and this is ways to do it through these animal maltreatment evaluations well, what, what you just talked about was truly um, fabulous I'm so glad you brought it up because um, in, in a lot of states yes we do have laws against cruelty to animals but as you said, in the courts, animals and farm animals in particular, and birds, have no rights. They are considered property. So um, I'm sure you're familiar with Stephen Wise and the Non-Human Rights Project and working to, get to, to define in the courts, through the legal system, what is personhood so that we can create this framework and groundwork in the justice system and training attorneys, as you were talking about training sociologists and psychologists in these evaluations, to have admissible evidence in a court that will truly change the system. Because until we define who has rights and, you know, who and who isn't a person and uh, that you know, intelligent animals, sentient beings, complex social systems. We know this now, but our social systems, like your institute, is catching up, but our legal system is still a bit behind. So it's fabulous that um, you're training and branching out into these other social sciences and um, dealing with the human mind and addressing it from the uh, cruelty perspective and the animal perspective. So what is um, the flip side of all this? Uh, or do you, do you see it changing? We have a couple minutes left here. Do you see the court system changing? I do see them changing, but it doesn't change without effort on, you know, of our parts. I think, you know, one of the, the big pieces of this is just getting a, you know, enough time and opportunity to, to work with, uh, you know, our criminal justice system, our public officials, you know, hearing from communities that these things really do matter. You know, we know that things like community safety are paramount, especially with the kinds of, you know, uh, violence see kind of rampant uh, things like gun violence. Um, these are important tools to intervene earlier, recognize risk factors often are indicating dangerousness or individuals that are, are engaged, you know, really have, let's say, a level of callous or mental health issues that are, are recognizable. You know, we hear a lot of public officials talk about it's not guns, but it's mental health issues. Well, you know, we could debate that. Well, this is, you know, but but this is one practical way to identify mental health issues that are um, observable. And animals deserve uh, the ability to be safe in and of itself. It's not just about humans. They have a right to not be harmed, you know, in, in their own. I think these are the right things to do, but they're also strategies to improve the quality of life for all of our communities. 
And I agree 100% because what we didn't even get into today is the whole industrialization of farming animals for human consumption, which is a subject entirely for a different episode. And um, before the, we began the show today, you would brought up some other issues that we would love to talk about that would be an episode in itself. So I'm hoping you'll come back and we can continue these conversations because it's really important for everyone. And this, this program is global. It's listened to all over the world. So it's an opportunity for anyone anywhere to get access to information that there are people like Philip and his graduate students and the University of Denver and the Institute for Human Animal Connection and how far wide uh, reaching and uh, the perspective that they are gathering together under this umbrella of human animal relationships that we do connect one way or another and we can make it better and we can make it worse and we need to really become aware of this. So unfortunately, Philip, we're out of time again today. It always goes so fast with you. Well, thanks for having me, and, and I'll look forward to our next our next chapter, Ellie. But uh, thanks to you and any of your listeners who might be interested in our feel free to get a hold of me. Yes, and look up the on uh, Google the Institute for Human-Animal Connection and look up Philip Tedeschi. He's a fascinating man. You can look up the different projects that they're working in all over the world. He talked about uh, one in um, Bucharest, so I hope we have a, a program on that coming up soon. But that's it for today, folks. This is Ellie Weiss, my guest Philip Tedeschi, and Our Wild World. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 